On today's episode, we try something new, ride our bicycles, and we suck at math. All that more coming up. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Our Science. I'm your host, as always, Alan Collier, and I'm joined today by Kyle Bine. Hey there. And Katie Ellsworth. Howdy do do daddy. Who are now going to tell me their favorite type of tree. Ooh, um, that's a hard question, but I think I'm probably going to have to go with white pines because they're like fluffy clouds of trees, and I just like evergreens because they last all the time and they're green always, and white pines are pine needles that are soft, and I liked to make piles of pine needles when I was a child just, when we would go camping. Just, just, white, just white pines, fine. Just, you can just white pines. It's fine. I would also like to tell just you that white pines fine. are great. Um, maple trees. Because wow. they are delicious. Basic. So sugar maple specifically. Sugar Basic. maple specifically. Good choice. Excellent choice. Basic answer. I am a basic bitch who likes maple syrup. Our first paper today comes from Eureka Alert. New and diverse experiences linked to enhanced happiness new study shows. Now the... Headline for this on Reddit described this as the key to happiness, that they were finding the key to happiness. I didn't use that headline because it's dumb and I don't like it. We solved it. Yeah, that sounds a bit misleading. It's super misleading, but I didn't see it used by any other magazine or anything like that. I think it was just custom made by a Reddit user. So I don't want to give the article a hard time for it. No, we solved it. We solved it. Happiness is solved. We figured it out. No one could ever be sad ever again because this paper right here figured it out according to one Reddit user. It's because the answer to happiness is don't get bored. I wanted to criticize this a lot more than I actually am going to end up doing. This, this is, is actually a really cool study. Yeah, it's, it's good and it's fine. I was ready to be critical, but I, I'm not going to be. It's a good, I mean, it's a good place to talk about how misleading headlines can be because that is the type of headline that I could easily see somebody using for something like this. They made it clickbait bait when it's actually just like, Hey, this is this is a thing that we've shown that like like they literally just say it's linked to enhance happiness too. It's not saying it will make you happy. It's saying it will just, you know, up your happiness. Isn't that nice? Yeah. So if you're already depressed and sad and have no happiness left, then you're fucked. So let's talk about what they did. They some interesting some interesting little methodology going on here. Some fun stuff yeah. that they did. Yeah. This is Do tell. They they got people from New York and Miami. Don't know why they picked those places. It doesn't really matter. For three to four months, and they GPS tracked them, which is must be fun. A little weird. Yeah, a little weird, but also like you know, it's it's. I think they just used it like through their phones, though. Though. I think so. I mean, I think We're so. We're all outfitted with GPS trackers that are monitored by the government at all times. Ha 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 ha. It would be a weird. It would be a weird experiment to be part of. It would be a weird. Like I don't know that I want to participate in this one because they're they're tracking with GPS. And then, I like this, they ask subjects by text message to report about their positive and negative emotional state, seemingly at just random times, or at least during this period. Yes. So, just every now and then, you get texted by a stranger. You happy today? What is your current emotional state? Well, it's currently apathy, because that is 99% of my days. Because you're not having new experiences. So, this is all about... It's true. It's because nobody it's, can leave their goddamn house right now. Well, that's true. So this this was done pre-COVID. They actually say this in the article. This is done pre-COVID. So this is a little caveat of this. Important right to now. know. Yeah. Yes. They, they're telling you to do essentially two things. One is to have new and diverse experiences, and then also, as part of that, go to new and diverse places. Mm-hmm. Which doesn't, as I as I initially thought, it, it's not like 
well, go to Switzerland and ski or go to Costa Rica and swim with turtles. It's No, it's like the example they use is take a different path on your way home from the store today. Well, and so they actually, yeah. they referenced that in specifically in response to the COVID pandemic, which I thought was really cool. Like that, that whole paragraph is they're saying, like, yeah. like they spoke to the researchers after the pandemic had started and they were like, yes, we conducted this beforehand, but even in a pandemic, like follow social uh, distancing and isolation procedures, but like you can do little stuff that breaks up your normal physical and mental routine. So you can take a different route to your grocery store or you can go for a walk around your block, just like little things that mix up your routine, even when following- Just go on a different block. Exactly. Uh, just like- The long and short of it. The long and short of it is, we're all just tiny zoo animals and we need require enrichment in our little habitats. Yes. What, what they found with this was that people who went to more diverse places then reported being happier than people who like just went to the same few places over and over and over again. Also, they found that they if the time spent at those diverse places was like a, a similar, a proportionally equitable time at these locations. So it's more than just like jumping from location to location. You actually need to kind of like, because that's just running errands and no one's happy doing that. It's like you actually have to go to these varied locations and spend about the same amount of time at, at each. Uh, and then that way you're actually mixing up your daily experience. Yeah, you can't just go to a place. You have to go to a place. Everyone is going to do this a different way. Like everyone's going to going to want to experience different places in different ways. And, mm -hmm. and some people are going to want to just go on nature hikes. And other people are going to like want to actually do events of places. And they don't they don't say specifically this even has to be natural areas, is there? No, no we're just using that as an example because both of us are nature people. Yeah, you hippies. Go to like different <laughs> yep. restaurants and stuff and, you know, hang out at somebody else's house. Yeah. Yeah. Go take, go to a different the same chain restaurant even yeah. like if you're yeah. a super creature of habit just go to the slightly different one yeah i don't so, know or if order you... order a different sauce on your pasta sit. on your chicken wings when you're getting your delivery food sit at a different table you know the criticism i thought i was going to have of this was you're you're assuming that people have the time and income to go and do these things so I would have been curious to see this article outside of COVID because they do, they talk about, well, there's a pandemic, so, you know, don't go on an airplane. And they give some great examples of, you know, taking different routes, going to different parks, stuff like that. But if that, if it hadn't been because of COVID, was this going to be a type of thing where we can really only put this in practice if you have time and money to go out and try new things? I, the thing is, though, the whole study was conducted prior to COVID. So they like, I don't think that COVID is affecting their conclusions. Yeah, maybe. I'm talking more about like the recommendations. Like what is the, what is the what are the ideal experiences to then go and have? I don't think it matters specifically what the experience is. I think it's just the fact that it's something different and it's 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 diverse stimulation for your tiny animal brain. Mm -hmm. There was a second part to this study too. Um, so half of brain the participants, scans. yeah, they they I, and I couldn't quite tell. It wasn't clear if um, they chose the people who showed the strongest correlation between very ex varied experiences and emotional state or if they just picked half at random um i believe it was half that. at random okay but the people who the so the people who were the half that got the brain scans of that half of the population that got the brain scans uh some of them showed that like just from the the gps data uh that they were happier when they were experienced very varied activities the ones for whom that was the strongest effect in their brain scans they actually showed that there was a greater link between the brain activity of their hippocampus and their striatum, which are associated with processing novelty and reward. So in these particular people, 
for whom it had a stronger effect, it's because it actually links to their brain function because their brain is connecting, ooh, new experience it, ooh, it's a reward, isn't this great? There is some, if you go to the actual paper for this, not just the article, but the actual paper, there's some funky graphics. Uh, so there's a lot, a lot of squares. The maps that show, like, the tracking maps of where people went, and the one guy in New York who just went a straight line over and over again. <laughs> so it's like it's like one day. They've, they've like, tracked the guy's movement one day, and one day he's, like, all over the place in Miami the other day, line. I go down the street, I go up the street, I am done. Yeah. And he was happier on the days that he went everywhere? Don't know. Probably. I mean, I assume. That's that's the whole purpose of the study. I think study, that's so what it'd be the weird study was. If, that's what the study was. I don't know if the specific guy was happier. I mean, maybe he was going to, like, a strip club on the day we went to a line, and he was having a great time. And we all know that that makes everybody happy. Well, I mean, it's really like, where are you going? Like, yeah, he could be, well, he only traveled on a straight line. But yeah, he went to like, you know, Chuck E. Cheese or something. And the other day he was, you know, picking up the. Okay, I really like that your fun places list goes <laughs> from strip club to Chuck E. Cheese. Chuck E. Cheese is just casino strip clubs for kids. Change my mind. I, I'm not going to because I agree. Yeah. <laughs> but like you could be, you could have the day that you're traveling all over the city. It could be the days that you're like arranging a funeral. It's like, it doesn't, that's not going to make you happy. Uh, do a, a bunch of varied activities in diverse locations, but also, you know, try to make up stuff you enjoy. This is, this is not the key to happiness. This is essentially boils down to they've done a neat little study to give you a suggestion of something that might make your life happier. So don't, don't feel like you have to force yourself into going different places because if you don't, you'll be miserable. You're going to be miserable regardless. But this might be like a little trick you can do every now and then to just like cheer yourself up and, and try something new. Yeah, you go from miserable to just mediocre. Science is telling you to try something new. Yeah, and you can also remember, remember that trying something new does not necessarily mean visiting a new place. Maybe it just means reading a new book. Maybe it just means starting a new show. Maybe it just means, I don't know, sitting in a different place to do your work that day. Be a swinger. <laughs> I mean, that's a jump, but sure. <laughs> fuck your neighbors if that's what makes you happy yeah. as long as it's consensual you do you man <laughs> sourdough starters is the weirdest fad ever hey we're doing sourdoughs over here too i bought yeast so i can make pizza dough so i can make my own pizza and then everyone was like we can make bread yeast i thought you said weast oh my god david made the same fucking joke <laughs> <laughs> uh. Uh, that's probably my favorite spongebob bit no, I actually, I, I stole yeast from my parents but so I can make bread, but not sourdough because that just seems unnecessary and I feel like I would get too attached and I would kill it. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I have a weird mental block when it comes to anything that's like fermenting and then being consumed. I'd have With to the exception not... of like beer? Yeah, I was going to say, you understand how beer works. I know. I have to not think about it. I have to not think about beer. I have to not think about yogurt. If I think about it too hard, it, I have problems. <laughs> I try not to think about yogurt in general, too. Yeah. For people new to the show, uh, Katie's an alcoholic. Shut I, mm, I finished my glass of wine. And by that, I mean second glass <laughs> today. Why don't, why don't, why doesn't Kyle want to think about yogurt? What's wrong with yogurt? Yogurt's great. I start every morning with yogurt. Oh, I have yogurt every day. I love yogurt. I just try not to think about it because I have like a weird texture thing. I refuse to eat yogurt out of anything but a tube until like two years ago. <laughs> Literally, I was like a grown ass adult eating yogurt tubes because that was that was how I preferred my yogurt. I have now decided this is the banner section. We're going to list all the all the foods that are appropriate to eat out of tubes. Go. One, yogurt. Freezies. <laughs> Two, cheese. 
Freezy's a good one. Do cheese straws count? Like the cheese strings? Why the fuck would you call it a cheese straw? You goddamn weirdo. No. Okay, but do you, you don't really eat it as a tube though. Like if you were opening the top and you just like, <laughs> if you like open the top and you slowly pushed it into your face, it comes in a tube though. Oh, Pringles also. Pringles is solid. That's in a tube. Yeah. That's in a tube. You're There's not... better chips than Pringles. Wrong. I didn't say that. I just said they come out of a tube. And that they're okay to eat out of a tube. Um, yep. How about adult slushies? Because you can get those and just eat them out of the, the tube. A... The hell is that? They're like, they're they're alcoholic slushies that you can buy and they come in like a tube thing and you're supposed to hypothetically pour them out and put them in a drink glass, but like you can also just... <laughs> For those of you new to the show, Katie's an alcoholic. <laughs> Our second paper this episode comes from Evening Standard. Cycling to work can cut risk of heart disease and cancer by a quarter. Actually, technically, 24%. Yeah. Rounding up. I know. Taking liberties with the data there, aren't they? Yeah. Clickbait. This is analysis of data that existed publicly. No, they use census data from 1991 to 2016. So it would be like publicly available data and it was um, data on... 300,000 commuters. This is uh, in the UK, right? In the UK, This is yes. in the UK, yes. But essentially what they did is, and I thought this was real interesting because I started reading this and I was like, okay, so are they going to look at like, like I wasn't sure how they were going to make the comparison between modes of transportation and like heart disease and cancer risk. But no, literally they looked at the census data, looked at who said they uh, commuted by bike versus by car versus train versus walking, and then looked at when they died and what they died from, which is a cool way to do it. But yeah, I mean, it the system works. The the twenty four percent too is like a combination of different types of data. So like they looked at a whole bunch of different types of death. So people who cycle are twenty percent less likely, or they had a twenty percent reduced death rate versus people who drove um, and. There was a 24% reduced death rate from cardiovascular disease, 16% reduced death rate from cancer, and they had an 11% risk of, uh, less of a risk of getting diagnosed with cancer, which I thought Yay. was interesting. Four methods of transportation I'm looking at here. Cycling, walking, train, and car. Yes. And they rank them in that order. Cycling is the best. Walking is second best. And then I found it really interesting that train was better than car, and they... they their reasoning for train being better than car was purely that you just walk to and from the train, usually, yeah. which counts as kind of walking. It's like, okay, I'll allow it. It's baby yeah. amounts of walking. It's like, it's like, guys, holy shit, exercise is good for your health. But I would be more stressed if I'm taking the train, too. So does that play a part? I don't know. It's interesting. Not everyone is more stressed by public transportation, Ellen. That's not true. Your I mean, it doesn't, apply, it doesn't apply to me, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are people out there who are more stressed by driving a car that's not a surprising take the data is all solid backs it up like they, they're not doing their own research so we can't criticize their methods like they're looking at census data it's like okay where i think this where i think this gets more interesting is that cycling is best but only three percent of people in the study actually cycled 66 percent drove 90 percent used public transport 12 percent walked and three percent cycled also apparently in britain percent is two words percent well yeah it's because it's per hundred yeah, but we like rats. It's one word, or if I've been spelling. Kyle, it did wrong I just blow your mind? Like... You did. <laughs> so that's uh, that's <laughs> honestly the takeaway from this paper is that percent is two words and is literally percent with cent being like the French century word for stuff prefix of hundred. Yeah, 
I didn't even realize that. Yes. Oh my goodness. Kyle's never been happier in her entire life. <laughs> but we spelled as one word, right? Yes, it's because we smush, we've just decided to smush it into one word because English is really good at smushing things into one word for some reason. Don't worry about it. Uh, but yeah, Alan, what you were saying that the 6%, the 6% cycling thing is, or 3%? 6%. 3% cycles, 66% drove. Yeah. So uh, it's interesting, like how robust slash concrete are your results when you have that small a percentage of the total people doing the thing that you say is best? How do you know that it's not the people who are already healthier who are choosing to cycle? You do have a sample size issue. You've got 3% of 300,000 is a number though. So True. it's... That's true. It is, in fact, a number. Most things are numbers. Don't even like to tell me what that number is off the top of their head. I think it's it's ten thousand, isn't it? Like nine thousand. Three percent of of three hundred thousand. Three hundred thousand. Kyle's got it. It's ten thousand. What did Kyle say? Ten thousand. Ten thousand. Yeah. There you go. You did it. Why? Where were you saying nine from? Because. The, the way I always do is I figure out what 10% is, and then this time I just time would multiply by three. Or one, sorry, what 1% is, and then multiply by three. Okay, that's, we're just going to not talk about how Alan does math. Yeah. It's fine. Uh, but anyways, back to the paper. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, because the answer is 9,000, by the way. Fun fact. Just did it on the calculator. The answer is not 10,000. It's 9,000. Oh. So, uh, you were saying... I suck at mental math. I shouldn't be commenting. You were saying? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I rounded up. You're thinking it's a third. You're thinking of a third. 10, 10, or 10,000 is like... Let's, this is not the purpose. Hey, this is not the not... purpose of this discussion. Can we go back to the things that are important? There is a bit of like uh, the sample size. I mean, 9,000 is still a decent amount. but It is. There's a bit of a sample size issue. And the other thing would be that is it's a bit causation correlation. Like it doesn't... There could be other factors. If you're cycling to work, there could be a number of other factors. You might just be healthier in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they're also saying it's healthier to cycle to work. And it's like, that's great. However, there's a very big difference if you're cycling to work when your work is a 10-minute bike ride away and your work is an hour bike ride away. Yeah. yeah. What I wanted to get at is is the accessibility of riding your bike to work is something that, especially in North America, especially in North America, I wouldn't ride my bike in the city. No, that's how you die. Yeah, it is It is a hellscape. I live in a city where six months of the year it's frozen, and the other six months it's under construction to the point where entire sections of road are blocked off, and you would be forced to drive amongst the cars who don't give a damn about you. Yes, that's how you die. I've, I've always felt that cyclists should be able to, to ride on the sidewalk. That's my, that's my personal. Yeah, I got yelled at for that once in Guelph. Guelph is a little crazy. Yeah, no, that never made any sense. It's like I, me hitting you or clipping you on a bike as a pedestrian is much better than me getting clipped by a car on a bike. Yes. So I'm, I'm sorry that you're inconvenienced, but it is far easier for you to get out of my way and for us to communicate as, pa as passengers than me with a car. Or you can just like ride on the grass. Like you can just ride around them. If you have headphones and you just like, you know, go around. Um, or bull take, just make bike lanes. Uh, they're, they're going to be rapidly constructing a strategic cycling network. London, England, not London, Ontario. Just Yes, and that's actually directly related to the to the COVID issues as well, is because they're looking for ways to have people travel back to work in less crowded areas than, you know, trains. This is saying that with, with that COVID being like, oh, everyone's a lockdown, now's a really good time. If you're going to put bike lanes in, now's the time to do it. And if we don't, we're going to regret it later. 
Because, as this is trying to say, and it does fairly successfully, you get a healthier population that people are able to cycle to work. Mm-hmm. Like, I would bike to work if I had access to bike lanes. It's very different in the UK than it is in North America because the, the space and the spread outness is not the same. That doesn't mean there are still aren't steps we can take, like be it in Toronto or in Sudbury or wherever, to make cycling easier to do and more accessible. Very and true. now is a great time to do it. And there's no mm-hmm. there's no downside to cycling to work other than you might get hit by a car and die. So if you take away <laughs> the risk of being hit by a car and dying, but like, yeah, like it's not going to make you less healthy. <laughs> uh, unless you get dead. Yeah, but that's why I'm saying bike lanes take away that risk, essentially. I mean, no, not actually, but essentially. I'm decidedly pro-bike lane. I do get that. However, I did think it was really interesting, the the distinction and like the notable distinction between the cycling and the walking to work in terms of how that impacted people's health. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's because I'm assuming that's because on, from like a biological standpoint and a health standpoint that cycling is a more uh, strenuous cardiovascular activity and it's actually doing more good for your system than just walking is. Also because people walking can just kind of like mosey along yeah i also they don't like this doesn't take into account how far people's commute is i imagine if you're able to walk to work you live real damn close to your work so like if you are someone who walks to work chances are you live within 10 minutes of your work like walking distance whereas if you're biking to work it might be a 10 minute bike ride but it's it's still a further distance even if the commute kind of same same it's a further distance that you're traveling which is more exercise that you're doing Exactly. The end the end interpretation of this is exercise good. Our third paper of the day comes from the Journal of Political Economy. Every dollar spent on high quality early childhood programs for disadvantaged children returned seven point three dollars over the long term. The programs led to reductions in taxpayer costs associated with crime, unemployment, and health care, as well as contributing to a better prepared workforce. Let's talk about how our science does the things that we do, because normally we get, normally we focus on the article. And in this context, I'm saying the article is what's ever written in like a magazine, a newspaper, wherever we find it. That's what we focused on because we like sort of the science communication aspect of how it's communicated. And then we'll also take a look at the paper just sort of to make sure there's anything else like super interesting in the background. Sometimes, sad times, we don't get an article. We just get the paper. Normally, you know, papers are a bit dry, hard to get through. That's why we're here, so that you don't have to read these so that we do. And then there's things like this where we don't want to read them either. And then there's things like this that break us. And I I can say confidently, I get the gist of this. There are three, first of all, how many pages? Like 46 yeah. pages? Yes, 46. A lot of pages. So many, too many. There is, let me tell you about the different types of math. There's normal math, which involves numbers. I like that math. That math is fine. Then there's sort of like different math that has letters, and letters aren't great in math, but I can work with them. They're okay. Then you get this math. This math just has symbols. We're past letters. Letters have long gone. D plus B dot golf club (laughs) plus X. We're off the rails here, people. When I read this, I read sections one and two and then skipped everything until seven. (laughs) Uh, this here is why this is okay on this podcast because I don't care if you understand this advanced economic math that has gone into creating the results for this paper. That's not what we do here. I am concerned that you get the 
basic conclusions out of this, the stuff that, uh, that we think is important to get out of these modern, recent scientific studies. That's my goal. There's more to it, though, than just the math, because, though, because, like, it is a problem with academic papers getting into, like, a lot of jargon and they get, like, into the weeds and stuff. And I, I understand the need for jargon because a lot of that is, like, specialist language and you're writing for other people in your field and they see those really jargony specialist language terms and they get it. This paper is doing linguistic gymnastics and I don't understand. It's just like, it started off so strong like with the background and it has a really good background on these programs. And then it just gets into these sentences that go nowhere and I can't figure out where they're going. There are terms here that are not defined. Nothing bugs me more than, not, just... than undefined terms. I know, but a lot of scientific papers are written to be read by people who are already familiar with the field, which in some ways I think, I think it's a little bit counterproductive in some ways. It's fine to an extent because in theory, that's the people you're talking to. You're, the people in your field are going to look at this and they're the ones who are going to get the most out of this. So that's your target audience. And to a certain extent, that's okay. The trouble is that often these papers, especially this one, need to be used to influence policy and decision-making. It's impossible to do that when no one knows what the hell you're talking about. Science doesn't work in isolation. Science is not like a lot of what times what happens in academia is you create this paper and it's got all this like dense jargony information and the other people in your immediate circle of other academics read it and they're like, ah, oh, yes, good paper, tap hat on the back. I'm going to write a paper using your paper to guide my paper. And then it just becomes like this circle jerk of people talking about the same thing. But science shouldn't exist in that vacuum. Science is meant to take a study like this and say, hey, we found out that like investing in early childhood education programs, especially in like disadvantaged communities, has a lot of benefits way, way down the line, including economic and tax benefits. Here are people who can make these types of political and like changes and disperse funding. Here's this paper that you can understand so you can do something with it. Yeah, except for nobody without a perfectly like really like detailed background in this specific tiny subject area is going to have any fucking idea what this paper says. Please, and that me. is why science communication is important. Hire us. That being said, let's tr let's go do that. Keeping in mind that we cannot talk about whether the methods are actually good because we don't understand them. Yeah, so we can't we can't evaluate that. I have no reason to think that they're bad. So I'm going to give them the benefit of it to an extent. I have no reason to think they're bad. And like, honestly, I would be happy to like, if I, I feel like these are people too, like scientists love to talk about their work. If you could sit down with one, any one of these writers and ask them to explain what they did, you could probably get a clear explanation out of them. But a lot of people, when they write scientifically, it just turns into jargony mush. But like, if you can sit down with them face to face and you, they see the dumbstruck expression, they're like, oh, I should like maybe explain this in a way that makes sense and doesn't use as many letters and numbers combined. Now that we've gone over that, Let's talk about what they're actually doing here because I think it's really cool. It's a cool study. It's a cool paper. It's a cool study. I think the methods are probably okay, but I don't know. There were two programs that were run, that launched in the 70s and were run in North Carolina. North Carolina is very famous for having dumb, ugly kids. <laughs> so they did this in North Carolina. <laughs> I don't think that's appropriate. Prove me wrong, North Carolina. North Carolina is Fine. Go Tar Heels. There were these two programs launched in the 70s that targeted disadvantaged children. These are two different projects and programs that I'm going to sort of lump together because they work to 
very similar ways. Not essentially the same, but very similar. So we're going to sort of glom them together where they had two parts. The first part was really early on, starting as early as eight weeks old and going up to the age of about five. So before you're in school properly, mm-hmm. doing like early, very early childhood education. Then as they entered school, there was this second phase of it, which supplemented their normal education with a, a bit more work type thing. Yeah. They have now taken this those kids... That was back in the 70s. So the kids are like 30 plus now. You want to do some math there? Want to do some quick math there? That's definitely more than 30 plus. <laughs> I say 30 because this is they're looking at the kids kids at the age of 30. At the time in this data the oldest experimental subject is in his or her mid 30s. So now that they've gone through that they've gone through their, you know, early they're into their 30s now. How has this had an effect? What effect has this had on them? What effect has it had on society? It was this effective. More than that, though, they looked, they did like, they, they did forecasting models to see based on, okay, what effect has it had till now? And using these models, continuing that data to what effect will it continue to have? And where the symbols come in is the symbols are trying to put a, essentially a dollar value on the success of these kids, essentially. You're saying, well, because they did this early childhood education program, they have this amount of dollar value more than they would have, which is a really hard thing to do. And we can debate sort of the ethics of that, but it's what Mm -hmm. they're trying to do because they're trying to frame this in an economic. Yes. From an economic, because it's, that's what the, the article is posted in. This is where they came from, where they approach the issue from. Yes. Yeah. I think it's a good way to approach it because essentially this was, and I don't know if they specify whether or not this was a program funded by tax dollars, but it probably was, realistically. It's implied. It does not specifically say in there, because this is the part I actually could read. Um, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's implied, but not mm-hmm. But stated. essentially what they're saying is like, we, we invested these tax dollars in this these programs in the 70s, and we've continued it on, and we're now seeing the like a return on that investment of 8 to 18.3%. Which is not insignificant. No, not. Yes, but also it's then a tax adjusted, which is getting to symbols now. Uh, and then that's that's the benefits. And then they do the benefits, benefit cost mm-hmm. ratio, which is saying that for every dollar you put into a program like this, you are getting $7.3 out of it. And getting that 7.3 number is where all the symbols come in. Because that's the math they're doing to figure out. And there's so many different ways. Like you've, got to, you've got to try to quantify things that you wouldn't normally quantify so they're trying to do all these formulas to create then like a dollar value out of it and that's where we get lost where we without the economic background (laughs) yeah the outcome at the end is that you put one dollar and you get seven dollars out which means that this isn't just beneficial from a human interest point of view it's beneficial from Mm -hmm. an economic point of view which is what they're trying to get at and it's beneficial from that point of view because these people are are earning more money they're able to uh have better education they also have better like social lives they talk about some of the social implications of it they're pulling less on the the health system and they commit less crime yeah, yeah. which is good yeah. just all around a really cool part of yeah, a really cool part of this program too actually that it's about the program not about the study necessarily but that the parents that this program like was it was free child care so that people could return to work and they and they specify too. They specify mothers are able to return to work, which is like that's that's massive. Now all of a sudden, like assuming these are two parent households, but even in single parent households, the fact that this is free childcare that also offers like all these other uh, benefits and enrichment and like 
stuff throughout as they're older, like these additional programs, that is free childcare so that way parents can work and whether it's a single parent household now is actually able to earn income or a two parent household is able to earn double the income, like that's gonna have massive effects on that child's future. I also thought it was really interesting that the, if we're gonna talk a little bit about the programs themselves, about how they included home visits. So this was not just education for the small children, it was also in some ways helping to educate the parents in terms of how to I don't know I don't I hesitate to say be better parents but how to improve the quality of life at home for their young children Mm -hmm. and it's it's not about trying to make people better it's about trying to help people in disadvantaged situations break the cycle yes yes no it's it's super cool and I do think it's really interesting and important that they've managed to go in and find that monetary value because it's unfortunate but true in our lovely capitalist world that the dollar speaks really, really loudly to a lot of people. And having these kind of uh, facts and data and stuff to back it up when it says, hey, look, you get money out of this. Essentially, you put money in, you're going to be getting more money out of it. That is a stronger argument in a lot of cases than just it's making things better for people. It's it's like none of us want to put a dollar value on somebody's like life or, or value is knowing where your target audience has their mm-hmm. values. And that's why And to put it in the context of the current situation, uh, the current Black Lives Matter movement, they, they specifically state too that like the the program that they looked at, it, predom- it predominantly targeted an African-American population in a university town in North Carolina, and they were able to basically say like this 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 is a tax funded program it is a systemic shift to help these youth and it has first of all social benefits that should not at all be ignored but also it has economic benefits that uh benefit not only these kids future but also like the larger populace they do also say that like this shouldn't be generalized to other minority groups which is absolutely true you shouldn't be lumping these groups in together but like the fact of the matter is is that these like movements like Black Lives Matter require systemic change and a paper like this kind of points to the benefit of that systemic change. Yes, which is unfortunate that we have to be pointing to the benefit of other people in order to affect change for those groups, but it's it that's unfortunately how this this reality. It's just how it is right now. And so having measurable quantifiable outcomes like this, that's that's powerful. That's a powerful statement to be able to make and to be able to point to the data and say, look, if we do this, there are benefits for everyone involved. And then the last thing I'll say is when we get to section seven, the summary, back when they start using words in normal ways and letters in normal ways, they talk about some of the limitations, which is that you cannot just take this, these two programs and say, well, they're successful. So then let's blankly put them on all places in North America because it's not that simple this. They even say there's no basis for using this state to argue for universal application of these programs across all social and economic groups. Yeah, I really like their final sentence that our study indicates what is possible and that the possibilities are substantial. That is all the time we have today. If you would like to see us struggle more with math, then send us math questions to at our science pod on Twitter. We won't do them, but you can still send them. I can still send them. We will ignore you, though. I will probably do them. I'm an overachiever. We'll send them to Kyle because she will feel obliged to do them and that'll be funny. (laughs) 
As always, we are a subsidiary or a partnership or something with Science Everywhere. We're, who cares? We're friends with Science Everywhere. You can check them out at Where is Science on Twitter and Instagram. They do great stuff. You can see Anthony Morgan host the great freestyle social events every Tuesday at 7 on Instagram Live. Uh, be sure to like, comment, and subscribe wherever you're listening to to keep up to date with ones. You can go check out past episodes as well. We've talked about commuting to work many times before, so you can find some other cycling-related things. I don't know what episodes they are. You'll figure it out. You're smart. As always, I was your host, Alan Collier. Uh, on behalf of Kyle and Katie, thank you for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. Bye!